Hi, I'm Rex Miller, and you are listening to The Resilience Lab, an Imagine a Place production where we explore how to integrate resilience into work and our lives through the journey and story of others. So in this week's podcast, I want you to be uncomfortable in the same way I was uncomfortable when I first met Dr. Pfeffer. He is the author of 15 books. Some of those titles are The Seven Rules of Power, which we'll dive into today, Leadership BS, Hard Facts, Dangerous Half-Truths, and Outright Lies. Dying for a Paycheck, and The Knowing-Doing Gap. Now, with titles like that, you know this is a fascinating mind and a fascinating conversation. So I want you to meet Dr. Pfeffer, and we're going to dive into the relationship of power and resilience and the rules behind power, and it will make you uncomfortable. But in the end, we can't achieve our highest aspirations if we cannot influence people, if we cannot overcome obstacles, if we don't have persistence, and underneath all of that is power. So I am eager to get started and for you to be just as uncomfortable as I was in our conversation. It is my absolute pleasure today to be speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Pfeffer. And so, Jeffrey, thank you for being on the Resilience Lab today. It's nice to see you. Yes. And we had a little bit of a challenge just having this. Um, So I want to thank you for being persistent. You passed the first test of resilience, and that is for both of us to figure out this doggone technology together. But what I'd like to do is just go right into the new book, The Seven Rules of Power, and talk about why, because you wrote a previous book on power. You've got several other books that delve into some of those issues. You've been writing a lot about how difficult, just how sucky it is to be in the workplace these days and how it's killing us. So why this book now? Well, I, you know, I teach a very popular elective both online and at Stanford on power. And I thought I needed a new version of the book that I visited that's now 12 years old that I've been using. Um, as I've taught, um, I've, uh, you know, you learn how to present the material more effectively, which in today's world means more concisely. But the other thing is, is that I keep hearing comments, uh, that the world has changed. Um, that the old rules of power don't apply, um, that, you know, you need to, uh, you know, that uh, we have a new generation and new technologies, et cetera. And I wanted to take those issues on directly um, in an introduction and point out that nothing has changed at all. Um, if anything, it's more, uh, the, the, it's more the way it used to be than it used to be, um, if that's possible. Uh, so that's why I wrote the book. So let's start with ch- the last chapter, because... I told my son, who was down here at the ranch over the weekend, you know, he's a musician, he's got his first job, 
and there's an issue. I told him to read the last chapter first. So um, that last chapter, why don't you give a little bit of an insight as to why you put it last? Because for me, if I'm giving your book to somebody who hasn't got any experience with you before, I'd say read the last chapter first. So the reason why I put the last chapter last is because one of the comments I would get after people talked about the various other techniques for getting power is they'd say, if you use these techniques at the end of the day, people are going to take you down or you're going to have troubles because if you network or if you build a powerful brand or if you break the rules or anything, uh, this stuff will come back to bite you. And so I wanted to assure people at the end, after they've gone through these other rules, that if those rules work and they in fact wind up with power and money or both, that all that they have done to get there, or at least most of what they have done will get, have done to get there most of the time, will be forgiven, forgotten, or both. So to me, this says, don't worry about what you've read before, because to the extent it works, and I believe it mostly will, everything will be okay. So what are some of the dynamics? You know, we, we live in a you Uvalde's almost a forgotten event right now. And we've got new ones that are taking the headlines. So outside of just the way news works and our attention span, what are the factors that create this uh, forgetting the past and people, you know, people giving people a pass as well? Well, you know, I think people want to, first of all, I think people want to be, they're motivated to be close to power. And so, you know, I think we, we have, we have selective attention. We have selective memory. We have selective forgetting. We have confirmation bias. We have the belief in a just world, which means that people in power must be, must deserve what they have. We have right. all of these mechanisms. Um, we have the desire to be close to power. And, you know, basically many of these mechanisms are operating on the principle principle of consistency. We want to believe that things are consistent with each other rather than discrepant. And so these things all cause people to um, to come to terms with whoever is, who is in power. Well, and that brings us to the social dynamic of it as well. And, and so how do you explain these wild narratives that get developed around a persona uh, that distort reality. You know, I know Steve Jobs was uh, was accused at times of having reality distortion glasses, but it seems like our country is going through reality distortion glasses. Well, people believe what they want to believe. I mean, you know, my okay. I had a colleague who once said, "It's not that you um, it's not that you uh, believe what you see; you see what you believe." And certainly social media has amplified that effect. But this is an effect that's going to occur independent of social media. Wow. You see what you believe. And now yep. because of social media, uh, you get fed the echo chamber. Um, of course. Because it reinforces that. Yeah. So uh, I don't want to go too far down the doom and gloom rabbit hole, <laughs> but I want to compare and ask can good guys still win? And good good uh, women too. Well, you know, so one of the, so the book opens with a quote which is, you know, if power is going to be used for good, more good people need power. 
It's as simple as that. And you, so you, so the good people can win, but they're not going to win unless they are, unless they're willing to play the same game as everybody else. They're not going to, they're not going to win by doing what the conventional leadership literature tells them to do, which is, you know, tell the truth, be modest, you know, um, uh, you know, take care of their colleagues, uh, you know, basic, be authentic, all the stuff that, uh, for which, by the way, there's almost no evidence. And by the way, no logic, but in any event, if you're going to play football, you got, or if you're going to play soccer, or if you're going to play tennis, or you're going to play whatever sport you're going to play, if you're going to win, you need to know the rules of that sport and play by those rules. You cannot say, you know, I'm, you know, football is a game where many people have gotten concussions and, you know, and many people have gotten um, various kinds of arthritis and other kinds of bodily injury from playing the game. So therefore, I'm going to play football using soccer rules. You're not going to win. I mean, you've got to play the game by the rules of that game, whatever they are. And if you don't like the rules, don't play the game. So one of the areas I've been looking at because of the pandemic, it seems to have made several of the chronic issues that we have in employee health and well-being acute. You know, it's it, it's really exposed to vulnerabilities. Power seems to be one of those areas of resilience. Um, so how would you relate the whole idea of agency, because that's a big concept in resiliency, having agency to act, to feel like you've got some control, that you can make decisions that have outcomes. Connect the two for me, or are, are they just two, piece, two sides to the same coin? I think they're two sides to the same coin, but but you actually use the word that I love, which is the word agency or agentic. Um, so if you were to ask me, you know, I would like to believe, but I don't anymore, that the that the outcome of either reading the books or taking my classes online or at Stanford is uh, is to learn the social science principles behind power. I actually think. I've come to the believe that the biggest effect of taking my class is to cause people to be more agentic. To take matters into their own hand or to feel they correct. have. Correct. Okay. Correct. And correct. And it has been particularly helpful, uh, believe it or not, um, for uh, people who are otherwise disadvantaged. So women, uh, underrepresented minorities, African-Americans, uh, people from minority groups in various countries, it, it, it has given them a, uh, a set of tools and a set of ideas that help them overcome what otherwise would, would, would be a position that they're starting from uh, one of disadvantage. And when they use the, the the rules of the class, including breaking the rules and including getting out of their own way and on, and, in, and including building a powerful brand, et cetera, they are able to accomplish amazing things. So it's not just that they become agentic, but they become successfully agentic. Well, so this is going to take me into maybe, maybe a hot topic, a sensitive topic, but there's a lot of programs, quote, to give people that are, have been in disadvantaged roles and coming into the workplace more agency or more seats at the table. But I'm curious, it seems like actually giving them agency is better than a program 
designed to just help them feel like they have more agency. And I, I see these companies struggling and struggling with really tough, wicked problems around how do we do this thing of diversity, equity, inclusion? Um, you know, what would you recommend? I'm, I'm coming to you and I say, look, we want to, to move more in this direction. How do we do it? So I would say this is true for all leadership development, not just for the diversity, equity, and inclusion pieces. I, you know, so, so a zillion years ago, maybe five or 10, I gave a talk at Half Moon Bay to a bunch of chief learning officers. And I said, put your hand up if you have problems with your retention of high potentials. Every hand is up. Keep your hand up if the reason why you have problems with retention of high potentials is because many high potentials suffer career derailments over political, over pop organizational politics. Every hand stands, stays up. How many of you do training in organizational power and politics? Every hand goes down. So I think most, this is why I wrote the book Leadership BS. I mean, I think most leadership training is completely ineffectual. And I think that's true for the diversity and inclusion field as well. So if you say to me, what should people be trained in? Not only for diversity and inclusion, but for anything, they need to be trained in how to get things done through other people. And that requires skills and interpersonal influence. I mean, management is getting things done through other people. We don't teach people how to, how to influence other people. The fact that they therefore fail should not be a huge surprise. Yeah, so right on. And I, I borrow from all of your books and my coaching. And one of the things that I talk about or, or ask about is the whole idea of proximity. How close are you to the people who make influence? You know, are you building reciprocity? But the one that stands out the most for me is get out of your own way. And I've seen yes. that for me as well, that I, I talk myself out of saying what I need to say. I mean, I'm doing what I'm doing today because I took a bold step with a billionaire owner of a company and said, I think we can make a major change. This is my thought. And to my surprise, it says, I like your idea. Give me a proposal. Literally changed my life. But I was talking myself out of, he's too busy right now. He's got other people he's talking to. And I finally blurted it out. So what are some of the ways we get in our way? Well, I think people use, uh, well, first of all, there's imposter syndrome. People don't believe they deserve, you know, where they are to be where they are or to have, uh, to have power or, or a certain position. I think that's number one. I think number two, people will often, and this is true, this is truer for women than for men, but it's true for men too. They will oftentimes, um, engage in what I call preemptory apology. Pardon me for interrupting. Pardon me. I'm not, I'm going to make a comment. I'm not sure this comment is going to be worthwhile. This goes on in class and I call people on it immediately. I say, do not start your statement by, by, by telling me why what you're about to say has no value. I mean, how, you know, I mean, let me decide it has no value. You don't want to begin by saying it has no value. Yeah, right. uh, people use adjectives to describe them. You know, one of my favorite stories, which I've now used twice in Leadership BS and in this book, uh, the, my uh, the former student comes to me and says, you know, I work in this organization and, you know, um, 
one of my peers has gone to our boss and said that I ought to report to him. Uh, by the way, um, all my peers are men. I'm a woman. By the way, all my peers have more organizational seniority than I have. And by the way, all the peers are older than I am. And I said to her, her name happens to be Christine. I said, Christine, you know, I can give you that's three adjectives. I'm sure they're all accurate. Um, let me give you three other adjectives. Uh, you are the only person in that group who graduated from a high prestige business school. You have run the project that makes the most money for the company. And you are the most analytically trained because not only had she gone to Stanford Business School, she had worked at McKinsey. And so she said, yes, those are, those are, that's actually true. And she sat up a little straighter on her chair. I said, okay, okay, Christine, you have six adjectives. You pick which three you want to use, you know, and not only to other people, but to yourself. And you see this all yeah. the time. People use, you know, use self descriptors that disempower them. And so the first thing you need to do is use, you know, is, is, is think of yourself as deserving and to think of yourself as, um, and using adjectives that, that, that play to your strengths, not to your weaknesses in any way. And, uh, and I think you want to, um, uh, I think, and, and the final way in which you want to get out of your own way is people are obsessed with being liked. Leadership is not a popularity contest. Nobody's hired you, right. you know, to be the most popular person in the company. You're hired to get stuff done. And, you know, and so don't, don't obsess about, you know, being liked. In the words of my friend Gary Lubman, who used to run Caesars, if you want to be liked, get a dog. A dog will love you unconditionally. <laughs> if you want to be loved unconditionally in business, you're going to be in for a very tough ride. Yeah, so I, <clears throat> I can imagine that some of your students are taken back. They have to think about it for a bit. They have to argue with you a little bit on this, and then they start settling in to start – you know, you've kind of shifted their vision. You've given them some new selective awareness things to look for. What What is the normal kind of mindset change people go through in your class? Do they embrace it immediately or do no, they? No, no. I think I talk about this in Seven Rules of Power. The four stages of my class typically are denial. You know, this doesn't apply in my culture. This doesn't apply, you know, in this industry. It doesn't apply to this or that or the other thing. That's a form of, it's all form of denial. Then then they get angry, mostly at me, which is fine. Then they get sad because this is the world we live in. And if we, and the reason why this class takes 10 weeks is that hopefully most of them, and most of them do get to acceptance, not all, but virtually all, but it takes some time. It does. And that's why I told my son to start with the last chapter, chapter seven, before you dive in the others, because you're likely not to embrace. And so it's kind of like, let's, let's start with the ending, the happy ever after ending or the reality ending. And then let's work on how do we get there. For my audience who, who listen to interesting folks about leadership and resilience, the next few years might be equally as challenging as the last two years in different ways. Uh, so the people that come to you in the classes, where does the ability to bounce back to show, you know, come back stronger do you weave that into your, your class on power or is that just a byproduct of 
developing more agency? I think partly it's a byproduct of, the, of developing more agency. But if you were to ask me who I would bet on, I would bet on people who have persistence and resilience. And I think persistence and resilience trumps brains every day of the week. You know, the, if, if, if yeah. you can, if you can persist in the face of setbacks, which every human being and every career is going to have, um, you know, if you can persist in the face of setbacks, if you can keep going, you can oftentimes wear the opposition down or wear them out. So I'm a big, huge believer in the importance of persistence and resilience. But let me ask you this. So people take your class. What is the most common thing they miss the first go around or the first time out into the real world? Um, what do they overlook or, or what is it that they have to kind of rub their nose in it until they say, ah, now I get it? Well, that's an interesting question. I think the thing that they mostly miss is that because most of what this class teaches them and most of the seven rules of power seem to go against – their socialization or maybe their upbringing or uh, maybe their religion or maybe, I don't know, some combination of that, they find it hard to do. So many people will buy an audio version of the class, uh, audio version of the book, and they'll buy a hard copy of the book and they'll buy a Kindle version of the book and they, and they have to, and many people will reread it occasionally to re-remind themselves of the lessons. I've got all three. <laughs> and I've got my Kindle uh, underlined. I've gone through. Now I listened to the 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 reader at one and a half times speed. I, I gotta yeah. gotta do that. But yeah, you're right. This is this is a lot of reprogramming. I mean, you know, that's I, correct. I that's think, a wonderful phrase. I think that's exactly right. Reprogramming. Yeah, it, it's almost like going to a cognitive behavior therapist to change the story in your brain about these things. And, um, and so, you know, and, and so with that said, um, what, how would you challenge me? You know, I'm in the research and the coaching world. Um, what would you challenge me with? What am I missing? I don't know. I've, since I've never been coached by you, I don't know exactly what you do for coaching. So I won't speak to what you're missing. I will say, I think many executive coaches um, are reluctant to have people lean into this material. And I, and I don't think that's true for you, but I think it's true for many executive coaches. I, many executive coaches are telling people too much what they want to hear, are offering them too much tea and sympathy as opposed to, um, as opposed to actually useful advice and to use a phrase that you've already used, uh, to push them. You know, I, you said, and I think this is right. This is true for everything. I think you said it with respect to tennis or something else that if you want to get better, you're going to need to get stretched. You're going to need to get pushed. Right. Absolutely. Well, and so with that, you've got this book out. I know this will have a, a run of about a year where you'll be getting it out, getting it in people's hands, but you've got something else cooking. And what's, what's next in terms of what's curious for you? What problem do you think nobody is really addressing well? I mean, you did that with dying for a paycheck, that there wasn't anything really out there on the medical side of all this. So I'm with this. So my next book, which is should be finished, but it's not yet, is a book on how companies in the U.S. could fix U.S. healthcare if they became more agentic. Really? 
You mean more like yes. a Mayo Clinic or a Cleveland yeah. Clinic? No, more like, more like, you know, so what goes on now is the CEO, even though healthcare is a huge expense, they delegate it to HR who delegates it to benefits, who yep. delegates it to benefits consultants. And at the end, basically nobody treats this, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, the working title of the book is no measurement uh, plus no accountability equals no performance. And that is really the study, the story of U.S. healthcare as it is purchased by companies. There is, they measure, to the extent right. they measure anything, they measure the wrong things, they hold no one accountable, and therefore there's no performance. Yeah, and we, we, and they, and, and companies could make a huge, huge shift if they just measured and held people accountable. So, um, well, first of all, Thank you for taking the time. Um, I'm hoping this stirs up more interest in conversation, even even some pushback. I mean, I, I'm sure, of course. You know, I've, I I use the Clifton Strengths. I like it because it measures the strongest elements of your brain, the top, yep, the top neural pathways that fire. One of the things that helps me as a coach is that. Harmony and empathy are number 33 and number 34. They're my last two. So I'm, I'm not easily emotionally pulled in. I'm pretty focused on, so what are we here to do and what's getting in the way? Yep. Um, but at the same time, too, one of the questions that I'm seeing is that in, in, in studying is the whole mirror neuron empathy is the gateway capacity into social skills. So I'm curious. Absolutely. One one last question. This return to office debacle, nobody's gotten it right yet. Um, all the pushback, you either have what I call the Silicon Valley approach where it's come back whenever you want, we'll send you a postcard, or the Wall Street approach, get your butt in the seat. You know, it's either cave in or crack down. But – one of the things that I don't think people are looking at is the loss of our ability to have civil conversations and that there's, there's a study that empathy has dropped close to 20% during the pandemic. And in the two socializing institutions, schools and work, where we have to see each other and we have to listen to each other and learn how to work together, uh, do you see that? I mean, this is a hypothesis I'm working on. Do you see that as a potential long-term unintended consequent risk if we abandon the priority of coming together to be together to do good work? Yes, and more than that, you know, humans are social creatures, and you know, and the and and being in isolation, you know, if I if I captured you as a prisoner of war and wanted to you know, break you, the first thing I do is put you in solitary. You right. know, many states now are rethinking the use of solitary confinement in prisons. I mean, the, the social isolation is debilitating to social creatures like human beings. So, so beyond even doing good work, there's a question about how the, how social isolation affects people's um, physical and mental health. And the two, of course, are connected. So, What's, what are companies doing wrong in terms they're redesigning their interior space, they're giving more amenities? Is it just that people have been off the treadmill for two years and so they're not in condition? They've reevaluated lives and found out, gee, I'm spending X amount of money going to work every day. Why is it not 
I mean, companies are still 20 to 30% attendance and, and they haven't figured it out. So where's it going wrong? Um, my sense is, you know, I mean, you use the word empathy, which is a word that has, you know, which is a very important word. Um, so I think companies tend to have a tendency to say, if it's good for Rex, it's good for Jeffrey and vice versa. You know, a, a, a zillion years ago, I wrote a case on AES and Dennis Bakke, one of the co-founders of oh, AES, yeah. said, said treating people equally is not treating them fairly. You know, if, if one person has a bunch of dependents and one person, another person doesn't, giving them the same health plan is not actually fair or equitable. You know, so pe different people have different circumstances. And I think companies tend not to um, to take those different circumstances into account. So we're going to have – and the idea is we're going to have one policy, and that policy is going to apply to every human being right. re regardless of where they live. You know, you're going to work from home regardless of how, how big your house is and how many other people are sharing it with you. Are you going to come back to the off? I mean, it's just it, – it, so I think companies' tendency yeah. to believe that same treatment is equitable is, I think, a huge mistake. I think that is, and they seem to be handcuffed because they're they're more concerned about the liability of giving you one day extra, but me come in more because I'm more productive. Um, that that seems to be something that the the liability seems to weigh more than figuring out how do we make this uh, more more effective and. So we're yeah. trying to be fair. And, and the irony is, is that if you actually treat people fairly by their, according to their circumstances, you're going to have less legal trouble than if you don't. Excellent. You know, I mean, the, the thing that it, that irritates people is, is, is being forced to do things that don't fit their individual circumstances. That's great. So what's your hope for the next couple of years? What, what would you hope as you see people having to handle really challenging times uh, coming back together, what, what do you think is a hopeful two years from now? If we're coming back two years from now talking about what would we be happy to see? Well, I would be happy to see, you know, the book on fixing healthcare out and somebody paying attention to it. And I would certainly be happy to see more people um, and more and more companies embracing training in 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 power and organizational politics as a way of increasing people's efficacy and agency, particularly particularly for the, the the diverse populations, but for everybody. You know that's why I wrote Leadership BS. I think we've done people a huge disservice by not making them more effective because at the end of the day. You know, people are hired inside of organizations uh, to get stuff, to make stuff happen, to launch right. products, to get products developed, to, uh, to sell stuff, to, uh, you know, and, and all of this involves and entails interdependence. And so not leaving them with the skills uh, to be effective in interdependent situations, I love that word. you know, and to have leadership training, which is basically, you know, I don't even don't even want to describe it. I think is, is is you know you're wasting money, but also you're wasting the potential of the human capital you have in that organization. Well said, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for taking time, and this has been a very energetic conversation. You've got me kind of going back to rethink lots of things. I like the phrase, you know. Being effective, that's a main strategy going forward. Do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? 
I want to be effective. You know, I told my son because he was a little uncomfortable and I said, you know, power is a tool. It can be used good or it can be used badly. Unfortunately, it indexes to those who want to use it badly. But if I have a choice, and I told him, I said, son, I want you to be a powerful, influential person that, that aligns with your values and accomplishes great work. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Please check out the other Imagine a Place podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more about building resilience, you can follow me on LinkedIn.